This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. These are ideas that aren't touched upon in headline culture and most media outlets. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased, but we do need your support. So leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. In today's conversation, we speak with Professor Melanie Yazzie, who is Assistant Professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota, starting in the fall of 2022. And Dr. Yazi is the co-author of Red Nation Rising, From Border Town Violence to Native Liberation, and The Red Deal, Indigenous Action to Save the Earth, both of which came out in 2021. She specializes in Navajo American Indian history, political ecology, indigenous feminisms, queer indigenous studies, and theories of policing and the state. She also organizes with the Red Nation, a grassroots Native-run organization committed to the liberation of Indigenous people from colonialism and capitalism. Today, we talk about how to be an activist in academia and how Dr. Yazi balances this. She also talks about how we can stand in solidarity with Indigenous folks and Indigenous movements. Dr. Yazi also explains structural issues like housing and how they are a public health issue. She also explains how colonialism affects health. Dr. Yazi also explains the state of mental health, both globally as well as in indigenous communities. And just as a warning, we do talk about some sensitive topics such as suicide in this conversation. This was such an important conversation and we really appreciate Dr. Yazi sharing her wisdom with us. And now onto our conversation. Hi, Melanie, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to chat with you today. Thank you for having me on, I'm really excited. First of all, I love your work. I've like binge listened to the Red Nation podcast. Um, I read the the Red Deal and all of your work on there. So I think that is, it's really um, inspiring and I love it. So I'm really excited to dive into that today. And first I would just love, like we do the intro for you in the editing process, but I think it's really nice when people introduce themselves. So um, could you introduce yourself to our audience please? And to us. <laughs> sure, of course. Um, again, thank you for having me on. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Melanie Yazi. Just a Navajo greeting, standard greeting. Um, it doesn't really mean hello. It means it is good uh, because things are good. You know, even though things are difficult in the world, like we always greet each other by establishing that goodness with one another as relatives. So I just wanted to greet everyone that way. Um, I'm actually between jobs. I just left the University of New Mexico where I was an assistant professor of Native American studies and American studies, um, but I'm on leave until the fall. I'm going to be writing a book, uh, actually, and doing some other projects over the coming eight months, which I'm really excited about, taking a break from teaching. But in the fall, I'll be joining uh, the faculty in American Indian Studies as an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. So making a move up to Minnesota, really excited about it. Um, I also am a co-founder of a grassroots indigenous uh, liberation organization called the Red Nation, longtime organizer, seven plus years doing that work, um, ride or die for the Red Nation, ride or die for the revolution. So uh, that's some of the other work that I do in addition to my academic work, uh, but it's really nice to be here on the podcast to talk about all of these really important things. Well, first off, congratulations on the new job. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what your new book is going to be on? Yeah, so my uh, I co-authored two books that came out last year, 
One is called Red Nation Rising. It's about border town violence. It came out with PM Press. And the other one is The Red Deal, which um, the Red Nation authored collectively. I had a pretty strong hand in writing and editing that book. Um, but my first single authored book is the one that I'll be working on in 2022. And it's going to be about indigenous feminism um, from kind of a queer indigenous feminist uh, perspective. And I've decided instead of it being more of a monograph, I want it to be a book that covers a lot of terrain. Um, I kind of want it to be like a like a New Directions in Indigenous Feminism type book. I think the field of uh, Indigenous queer studies and Indigenous feminism needs a bit of an injection of this kind to kind of move us into new directions. And so I have so many chapters outlined already. I have a lot of interviews lined up and I've written a lot of the content is just assembling it into a coherent book and figuring out where to publish it. So that's what I'll be working on. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that you have a lot to say, so it's always hard to I do. Like, <laughs> cut back some things. I, I, I'm never, I'm never at a loss for things to say. <laughs> Something I would love to start out on is I know that you, in your introduction, you talked about your work in academia and then also in activism. And um, I started getting involved in like climate activism in New Orleans, where we go to school. And it's pretty unusual, honestly, to see a lot of academic Academics in activism. So I would love for you to explain how you got involved in active activism or it was activism first and you went into academia and how you maintain that balance. That is such a good question. Um, no, I was, I was definitely in the academy before I started to do the activism and the more engaged political organizing. Um, I started my graduate Trajectory in 2009, I got my master's degree at Yale in American studies, and then I came to UNM for my PhD in American studies, which I finished in 2016. And I would say, um, I think, you know, like back when I was a master's student, I was applying to a bunch of PhD programs. I got into like very elite institutions um, for PhD programs. And people were like totally shocked. I even shocked myself that I chose the University of New Mexico of all places to get a PhD. And <laughs> at the time, people were like, I can't believe you chose that institution over these other institutions that were throwing all this money at you and stuff. But the reason why I chose UNM was because I felt like I needed a much more grounded experience working with an institution that had a lot of Native people and my own people, Navajo people, um, close by, but also at the institution who could really help to shape my work in a way that that never would have happened had I stayed at Yale, for example, to get my PhD. Um, I think that my trajectory would have been way different had I stayed at those types of institutions. And so um, Jennifer Nesdenetdale, who I always credit as like, she's my biggest champion. She was my dissertation advisor. Um, I was the first native student she ever um, chaired, uh, was a committee chair for. And she was the first Navajo person to get a PhD in history. She received her PhD in 1999. And just a real pathbreaker, incredibly well-respected amongst our people, has done incredible work um, on the ground and within the tribal government and with her writing to really support our people, Navajo nationhood um, and, and different human rights, Navajo human rights. And so getting the chance to work with her directly um, and to do the work on the ground, I think is was like the first step towards really transforming what I considered knowledge production, I guess. Um, and so I have really like, rigorous elite academic training as a graduate student. But when I went to UNM and started to develop relationships with my own people through Dr. Dennett Dale, um, but then other graduate students who were doing union organizing, for example, at UNM, Students for Justice in Palestine was also really active in the early years of my uh, my PhD work at UNM. Um, And then just discovering like the incredibly vibrant history of red power activism in the American Southwest, I just ended up plugging into things in a way that I never would have. I think if I'd basically gone to like an East Coast elite school 
um, which I had actually been leaning towards um, when I was working on my master's degree. And so the work on border towns, reservation border towns, which um, resulted in the Red Nation Rising book that was published last year. And then um, starting the Red Nation in the fall of 2014, I was, that was my fifth year of graduate school, PhD, fourth, fourth year maybe. Um, that really completely transformed uh, my intellectual work and what it means to produce knowledge and to write for movements, um, for revolutionary purposes. And so I started to read outside of like academic canons. Um, I was most ex more exclusively like very obsessed with like academic debates about race, for example, or like queer theory. Um, but then the organizing work itself opened up a whole new world actually of knowledge to me that was deeply political, um, deeply leftist in its orientation, um, having a new relationship with feminism that wasn't based in academic literature, which actually can be quite reactionary <laughs> if you really if you really pay attention to it. Um, and so I just had to, I had a really different relationship all of a sudden with knowledge because of the on the ground work through the Red Nation and then the border town um, justice and border town violence work I was doing with Dr. Dennett Dale and another faculty member in American studies. And American studies, of course, has a long sort of political history as a field, um, something that's very oriented towards social, um, economic and environmental justice that is, you know, sort of baked into how we go about the process of producing knowledge and teaching and writing and those types of things. And so uh, that was kind of like a good launching point for doing more of the on, on the ground organizing and activism. Um, but yeah, I would say, right, the graduate school came first, activism came second, but then the activism completely transformed, like what I even thought of as knowledge itself. Um, and so I'm a very different thinker and a different writer and educator today. And, and do you ever find it difficult um, to be in academia? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Academia's, I, so there's, um, so there have been a few people who have, you know, interviewed me for uh, academic, academically written pieces about the Red Nation. Um, so some, any of the number of things that we've done and those are like very well-meaning studies, but I find that like academics don't understand movements when they write about them for the most part, because they don't participate in them. There is like, there is something, you, you actually have to participate in building movements, um, especially from a, a space of like deep political commitment to something like indigenous liberation, for example, um, that really will change your, the way that you understand what's actually happening historically and socially and politically, even theoretically on the ground. And so you actually have to participate in those movements. You can't just like write about them and publish some sort of article. Um, and so I actually find a lot of what's written academically about social movements uh, deeply unsatisfying um, and distorted. I think it's distorted. And I think it's, you know, the academy, there's so many, there's class, you know, there's a class politics when it comes to being a professor and being in the academy, you're part of the petty bourgeois, um, bourgeoisie, you know, like you, there's a certain kind of expectation of how you approach politics from the, from a distance, you know, as an observer or something, um, there's often a price to pay if you're very political and an academic at the same time. And so that stuff is, you know, I deal with that a lot, but um, I don't know how I've been able to like be able to move forward and advance in my career because I'm like very unapologetically <laughs> political. <laughs> Somehow I still keep getting jobs. It's just like shocking to me. <laughs> it's needed. It's needed. So we've mentioned the Red Nation a couple of times. Do you mind explaining what it is to us and our audience? 
Yeah. Uh, so the Red Nation is an organization, like I said, that I co-founded uh, in November of 2014 uh, here in Albuquerque, but we do work internationally as well as throughout Turtle Island and locally and regionally. Um, the Red Nation is really just a, it's a collective, um, it's an Indigenous women-led, um, Indigenous women and LGBTQ2-led organization that advocates for the liberation of Native people from colonialism and capitalism. And that looks like a whole lot of things. Um, we have politics and um, we've done campaigns about a lot of things, whether it's um, homelessness or environmental destruction and the protection of sacred sites, um, resource extraction, pretty much police violence. We've done a lot of work on police violence against Native people. Um, the Red Deal kind of incorporates a lot of the experience we've had doing work on these on these various issues. Um, like I said, our bread and butter, kind of the beginning of the Red Nation was about addressing these things in border towns, um, towns and cities that are typically thought of as off reservation, but have high native populations and actually have really extreme um, amounts of violence and, and discrimination that native people experience. And uh, this work, the Red Nation really continues what we call the long tradition of indigenous liberation. And if you think back to Red Power 50 years ago, um, Red Power was actually born in the Southwest, what is considered the American Southwest. This is something maybe people don't know. I think people are always like American Indian movement is Red Power, but Red Power was also the National Indian Youth Council. It was also Indians Against Exploitation. It was also the Coalition for Navajo Liberation. Um, and these organizations were born in border towns like Albuquerque and Gallup and Farmington, um, places where white supremacy and settler vigilante violence was really extreme against native people. And so these kind of grassroots native led organizations, primarily led by young people at that time, um, were really trying to address these dynamics and these social and economic and political conditions that native people face. Um, I think oftentimes when we think about indigenous politics and resistance, we think about like, you know, there's a kind of like a romanticization, like, oh, Indians live on the land and I don't know, we do, but also like the majority of us actually live in cities, um, actually cities and towns. Yet the reality that we face in these spaces wasn't really being addressed even like a decade ago, I would say in the movement work. And so the Red Nation was really just trying to pick up the torch of um, I think like the legacy from Red Power that had been laid down 40 years prior and to continue it in this day and age to try to address things and how they had changed or hadn't um, today. And so that's what the Red Nation is. We're still mostly based in Albuquerque. We grew really big during the pandemic. Then we got really small again. Um, and we're still kind of small, but I don't know. We're small, but mighty. <laughs> we get things done. <laughs> so that's what yeah. the Red Nation is. <laughs> and your podcast is amazing. Our podcast uh, has been like a really incredible, like has seen incredible growth over the last year. That's awesome. And thank you for explaining that to us and our audience. Um, and we also recently uh, had the honor to speak to Dr. Nicole Redvers, mm -hmm. and she was talking about colonialism and she explained colonialism a little bit to us and to um, our audience. Do you mind touching on it a little bit, like a little bit of a brief refresher and how that affects um, communities and community health? Oh my gosh. Okay. So um, maybe from maybe the easiest way for me to describe or to define settler colonialism would be again from this context of border towns. So again, what is a border town? A border town is a town that is typically thought of as off reservation space. So a town that is considered to be part of the jurisdiction of the United States, a town or a city. Albuquerque is not on native reservation land. Albuquerque would be considered a border town because it borders reservation land. It's completely surrounded by pueblos. Um, parts of the Navajo Nation are very close by. So it's quite literally a border between indigenous or tribal jurisdiction and settler or US jurisdiction. And so what happens in these spaces is it's kind of a microcosm 
of the larger structure of settler colonialism and how it operates, right? And so the reason why violence, police violence, state, which is state violence, police violence is state violence, or let's say like racial discrimination, which comes from institutions, but it's also practiced by everyday settler citizens in these spaces, right? Because people are normalized and indoctrinated into like the logic of elimination as Patrick Wolf called it, that's really essential to settler colonialism as a structuring force of US nationalism. And so what we're taught, you know, from the time that we're born is that native people should be eliminated, right? This is like the building block of settler colonialism that we should either be gone, right? That we're a fragment of history, that we no longer exist or that we should be disappeared or disappearing. All of those types of things, the things that you think about when you hear the word elimination. And so in a border town, because it borders reservations where there's like a lot of native people living, for example, there are in fact a lot of very much alive native people in these spaces where they're not supposed to belong because native people aren't supposed to be where we don't belong. We're supposed to be extinct, right? According to this logic of elimination. And so what happens in border towns is we throw that whole logic of elimination into chaos, right? We, we, we throw it upside down because we're not supposed to be there, but then we're there and we're not just there, but we live there permanently and we live there in really high numbers. So like there's almost 300 indigenous nations, for example, represented in the population in Albuquerque, 10% of my people live in Albuquerque. That's like 40,000 Navajo people live in the metropolitan area. And so what happens when you just have a bunch of native people who are in a place where they're not supposed to be, right? You have to police and contain that threat right, because it's considered a threat to the colonial order of things, to this logic of elimination that is really baked into the American consciousness. And so we, we, this is how we theorize and help to explain why the levels of violence are so high against Native people in border towns, um, why they're so frequent, and why they are so wide-ranging, whether it's from, you know, white supremacy, actual white supremacy groups that are incredibly common, that troll native people who live on the streets, for example, and kill them or maim them, which happens a lot in border towns. Um, it's kind of like a settler rite of passage in border town um, spaces, whether it's the police and the high rates of police violence against native people. Native people actually are killed at higher rates than any other population by police. I'm not sure if people know that. Talk about a public health issue, <laughs> you know, police violence against native people. Um, uh, homelessness, right? So. These are actually actually native homelands. Border towns actually are built, were stolen from and then built upon and claimed by the United States, even though these are like the ancestral homelands of indigenous people. And yet our people are overrepresented in the unsheltered population in these spaces. So basically we're homeless in our own homelands, which is a crime against humanity, but also like a major, if you're talking about public health, a major public health issue. You know, when we're thinking about public health, I think sometimes people think about like the body and like biology and those types of things, but like how would housing, right? How would like equality, equal access to housing or like equal access to healthy food, like talk about a preventative measure when it comes to public health. And so when you're talking about public health and colonialism, let's say in a border town, when we think about this as the red nation, for us, we're like, what if we provided housing, like fair and sustainable housing to everyone, affordable jobs so people could buy affordable food that's actually healthy for them, um, transportation so people aren't like out in the cold all the time, um, or driving down broken down vehicles where there might be like, you know, like a lot of carbon monoxide inside the car because the vehicle is in such bad shape, all of these things, that there is like a much broader spectrum of what we often call public goods, right? The things that are human rights actually that people deserve 
that should be factored into this kind of larger structural understanding of what it means to improve public health. That public health isn't just about like hospitals and clinics, even though it is, and those things need to be improved, but it's like a very holistic understanding of how we go about improving the health and, and, and welfare of all people, but especially indigenous people. And so, you know, like not, not being pulled over and profiled by cops and then not being killed at such high rates by cops, that would be like a mass improvement in public health because then you would be alive still, first of all, right? but you wouldn't be afraid. You literally wouldn't be afraid to be indigenous in public. And so in these kinds of places, like you have to be very careful being indigenous in public in a border town because you're not actually supposed to be there, right? According to this logic of elimination. And so I feel like that kind of maybe helps people understand how settler colonialism operates um, very much in the present and that how that larger structure really impacts our everyday, like our, our mobility and our movement through these spaces, but then how that relates to public health in a much larger way. Wow. That was very well explained. Thank you. So, <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So most of our listeners are in their 20s or maybe early 30s. Can you maybe paint a picture a little bit more about what some of these other day-to-day challenges would be that, that would relate to our audience if you're a native in a border town? Yeah, sure. I mean, let's just talk. So we're talking about activism too, right? Um, and just talk about being an indigenous person who is engaged in like political activity in public in these spaces. So if you're just a native person in public in a border town, you're already considered a threat and you're treated as such just buying gas or going to the grocery store or driving your car. Um, there's like this joke in Indian country, like driving while indigenous, a DWI, because it's like, you just get profiled and then you get pulled over. If you, if you look like obviously indigenous, like especially people who are darker and then cops automatically criminalize you as being drunk, right? Cause there's this like archetype, this racist archetype of native people, um, especially in urban spaces that were just drunks. Right. And so that like just getting in your car or like going to the store and being followed in a store, um, those types of things happen, even if you're not engaged in political activity, but holy cow, if you are out there protesting in the streets, if you're like out there demanding justice, or you're like talking about decolonization or liberation, or just like basic equality or like rights for indigenous people, the level of intimidation and harassment and criminalization, it goes way up actually in these spaces. Um, and the Red Nation has experienced this, absolutely in Albuquerque, um, we're actually vilified. We're like blamed for everything that happens actually. And this is actually hilarious. We're like, we actually weren't even at that protest. Thanks, but thanks for giving us a shout out. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I think this, uh, especially like two years ago during the BLM uprising, um, there was a version of that in New Mexico that was very powerful. It was mostly about the toppling of conquistador statues, you know, monuments to the type of white supremacy that's attached to Spanish colonialism in this region, but there was a lot of like solidarity with the black liberation struggle um, and that call for racial justice as well, primarily from indigenous people, I would say in this state. Um, And we faced like incredible backlash. Um, There were organized white supremacist neo-Nazi militias that were working in collaboration with the police. I don't know if people know, but the Albuquerque Police Department is one of the most homicidal police departments in the country. They kill people in Albuquerque at a higher rate than almost any city in the country. And so this is just like the context, right? This is just the context. And most of those people who are out there, you know, on the streets during those protests were young people. They were people in their teens and 20s and 30s 
who I think have a very different understanding of like what really needs to fundamentally change in this country, right? In order for justice to be even remotely kind of talked about, let alone achieved. Um, and so I feel like for the younger listeners, you know, just understanding like um, really the level of criminalization and really like danger that's actually involved, I would say for indigenous folks, definitely for black folks um, who are out there doing the work, you know, to demand justice um, and to engage in that activist work just for the health and well-being of our communities and trying to build a different future, right? A future that's not based on racism and sexism and homophobia and colonialism and white supremacy, right? So that's kind of what the landscape is like. Um, yeah, and I have a feeling it's gonna be the same way in the Twin Cities, because of course that's where the uprising started and that's where I'm moving. <laughs> so it'll be yeah. interesting to do this work on the ground there as well. Yeah. For all of us who don't identify as black or indigenous, how do we stand in solidarity with movements like Black Lives Matter or the Red Nation? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's something interesting. So there's a whole uh, thing I haven't talked about yet, which is like climate justice and kind of land-based struggle, which is a really important, like this, it's, I would say it's the other thread right now of the indigenous liberation, indigenous movement building work that's happening in Turtle Islands. So there's a lot of stuff happening around like border towns and police violence in like city or like urban spaces. But then there's a lot of organizing against resource extraction, against oil pipelines, right? People are blockading, indigenous nations are blockading in so-called Canada. Um, and the Indigenous Environmental Network just came out with a report in October where they actually quantified the impact of small scale indigenous direct action frontline resistance against carbon emissions, for example. So oil and gas infrastructure, you know, pipelines, um, the, the types of things that are part of like the, the machinery of these multinational corporations in the oil and gas industry. And indigenous, those small scale indigenous frontline struggles have actually reduced or decreased or prevented 25% um, of overall carbon emissions from the United States and Canada alone from going into the atmosphere. And if you wanna talk about like a major impact on climate change and you wanna talk about climate justice, these frontline resistance efforts led primarily by indigenous women and young people are really like bringing home the goods when it comes to true like reduction of, of carbon emissions um, when it comes to climate change. And so the other aspect I think of the movement work um, has been related to that kind of struggle that's happening in that type of space. And the thing that happens though, because of that work, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people, um, even people who are like in their twenties and thirties listening to this right now, maybe have been coming of age, obviously during the era of Black Lives Matter over the past, what is that, like seven years now? Seven years, but also probably remember like Standing Rock and like the No Dapple struggle of 2016 and early 2017. And those might be like touchstone moments for people and like their, their political development and their political growth, especially for younger people. And so I think folks are more oriented towards um, the indigenous movement through kind of like the environmental and the climate justice stuff that I think most people characterize Standing Rock as representing in their mind. And certainly these frontline actions that I'm talking about that were in this IEN report. That said, what often happens when people, non-native people see indigenous people like out on the land, like defending the land and protecting the water, there's this weird like stereotype and cultural assumption that comes along with it where it's like indigenous people are so in touch with nature and 
like, um, we are like one with the land and like, you see us praying. And then there's this like interesting, like expectation that's about kind of like a romanticizing of the spirituality and the cultural aspect that people really gravitate, mostly white people. I'm just going to be real. Like <laughs> white people really gravitate to this stuff. And then they come out to front lines with like really good intentions of helping, but then it's, for, but it's really just about them and their like weird guilt or like their savior complex, or they like want to be indigenous, which is like a very settler thing to do. And so this being said, um, something that we've had to talk a lot about in, in the Red Nation, because we're like, no, don't do that. Like, we don't want that around us. We don't want that on our front lines. When you're talking about police violence, people don't do that as much with police violence, but they definitely do it when it comes to like the environmental kind of stuff, because it kind of gives you permission to act that way, like a tree huggery kind of thing. Um, and so instead of making like the move towards your personal identity or like your, you know, like you're trying to figure out who you are through the work, that's actually not what it's about. You don't need to do all of that stuff to have a relationship with indigenous struggle. You just need to be down for like the struggle itself. You need to be like, yeah, land return. How can I help with getting this tribe, getting their land back? Like I can go shut down something. I can go blockade something. You know, I don't have to do like the, I don't have to smudge off. <laughs> you know, I don't have to participate or like be voyeuristic, you know, with like the, the cultural and the spiritual stuff. Like you can just show up and you can just do the work. And the relationship should just be about the work and about the political commitment. Like you don't have to have all of the other identity stuff added onto it. Like that's inappropriate and it's essentially racist. You know, it's a type of cultural appropriation that you just shouldn't do. And it happens so much. So that's my only recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really appreciate that. So we've, we've talked a lot about like very structural issues, climate justice, climate change, just like social justice in general all really relate to our health. And so we would love just to touch a little bit more on how like free housing or just social stuff can affect people's health. Yeah, totally. So um, the Red Deal, which is something that the Red Nation published in April of last year, it's kind of like um, like the, the our first shot at doing like a program for liberation that looks at, I think the concept of health or public health from a structural perspective that addresses the health of our bodies and the health of the land together um, through a non-carceral, actually like a, a deeply anti-imperialist, indigenous and abolitionist perspective on what it would mean to improve public health, right? Through um, a relationship with all of these things and a transformation of all of these things. <clears throat> In that document, you know, something that we talk a lot about is, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about like these frontline struggles I was just addressing. Uh, that are trying to protect the land and protect future generations, not just of human beings, but of all species, um, all of our relations from the mass destruction that climate change is bringing, but also that the future of that destruction, the environmental pollution, right, that happens because of resource extraction on indigenous lands that, I mean, if you kill the earth and you kill your ability, right, to have a healthy life, you can't grow food, everything is contaminated, like the water source is contaminated and dries up. Um, the things that are actually the basic building block of wellness and health from that larger perspective are really destroyed and prevented. And so essentially what you're doing is you're making it impossible for people to have a future, right? If you're not addressing the health of the earth as like a precursor to, and that's not necessarily like a social type of thing. I think people probably categorize it more as an environmental thing, but I think for us is that we don't think about them separately. It's all intertwined. Um, and so 
you have to actually be willing to throw down really hard to protect the earth in order to have any type of um, movement for public health, I think. And, I, and I'm not sure, I think that's a very indigenous thing, um, an indigenous thing to say. And this is absolutely what we say in the Red Deal, which is why like there's a whole section on, on I think it's called Healing the Planet. And then the Healing Our Bodies section, uh, you know, we talk about suicide, right? We talk about MMIWG, which is missing, murdered and missing indigenous women and girls, um, right? We're just addressing the really high levels of violence actually that our people experience as a public health crisis. Um, because, right, in order for us to have a healthy relationship with our bodies, you know, our bodies have to be decriminalized, right? How we move through space and how we're viewed. Um, like those stereotypes need to be shattered because there's a lot of violence that's delivered through those stereotypes, like the idea that indigenous women are just like inherently like rapeable, essentially, um, according to the settler logic, which is part of the reason why MMIWG is like this thing that we have to address, um, right? So how do we value indigenous women's bot indigenous women differently, right? In this kind of different kind of societal um, scale and perspective, like, you know, that would actually do a great deal to promote the health of indigenous women. Um, you're talking about the history of mass sterilization of native women throughout the 1970s and the 1980s, which is very distinctly linked to the Indian health service. So the actual health sector, um, if you're talking about public health, but the larger perspective and view, societal view that was driving that, right, is that native women shouldn't be reproducing. We should be dead, right? Like it's like making sure that native people don't have a future is essentially what that logic is about and what sterilization was about. And so part of like this larger view of what would mean like a decolonial maybe approach to public health, like valuing native women, <laughs> that would just be like a major, major win actually, I think for the larger struggle for public health in a settler society like the United States. And we're actually kind of grappling with that right now. Um, I think that there's a national discourse around MMIWG, Deb Holland taking over the Department of the Interior, there is like some interesting stuff happening, I think, around Native women's rights. Of course, we're facing um, a huge battle in this country right now over reproductive justice and reproductive rights. And so, you know, in, in order to have true public health, you really have to like abolish heteropatriarchy <laughs> and misogyny, to be totally honest with you. And I think if we did that one thing really well, we would make incredible gains, actually, in terms of public health. So that's just one, just like one thing that I can think yeah. about. Yeah, Daniel is going into psychiatry. And so I would love if we can talk a little bit about what you see a future for mental health could be and like what mental health resources there need to be uh, for the health of the population. And just what is the current state of mental health from what you see uh, in your community? Oh my gosh, mental health is, oh, COVID has just made things so much worse. I, I think um, probably for everyone, but uh definitely for native people, like suicide rates were already so high. You have young listeners. And I mean, I don't know what the stats are, but I don't know of a single person, a native person I know who hasn't had a family member who's died from suicide, a native family member. And most of them, you know, do this when they're young, when they're teens or in their, in their twenties. And I, the way that I see it is it's really part of this larger, right? Structure. You're talking about structures, Amanda, right? And we have to like transform these structures and and otherwise, I don't think the change is going to happen. But to me, like the high levels of suicide um, and just like the really devastating toll that colonialism takes 
on our young people, on native people, um, you know, like elimination, if like you're living in a world that wants you gone, you know, like that, that's obviously going to take a huge toll on your mental health. And that suicide is like a technology of that in a way, right? It's a technology of elimination um, because of the way that that like works its way into your inner self, right? Like one of the most famous theorists and, and political activists who helped us to understand what decolonization should look, to, look like was a psychiatrist. It was Franz Fanon, right? He was actually one of the most important thinkers in the 20th century who really helped and now indigenous people have taken up his writings on, on decolonization, even though that with the context of that was in Africa, it was not here, right? In Turtle Island or in North America, but he talked a great deal in his work about how the inner landscape of decolonization had to relate to the larger collective struggle, the material struggle for decolonization um, that we must be engaged in together across lots of different groups of people. Um, and so he was very interested in like the psychology of colonization and then the psychology of decolonization. Um, and so I think one of the most important mental health crises and then areas that need to be addressed just for native people alone would be suicide. I really do. It's like, it really is like an epidemic in our communities um, and it devastates entire communities and really is just about preventing a future for our people. Um, and so that being the case that there's like this massive I don't even know if it's a crisis. It's just like, it's almost like a structure now. Same with violence against native women. It's like the suicide, native youth suicide and just like violence against native women are so normalized actually when it comes to native people. Um, and it's absolutely part of this larger colonial kind of structure of elimination I'm talking about. And then you also have, if we're talking about the criminalization of youth, of native youth, like in Canada, for example. Okay, so I'm gonna backtrack, right? So in May of 2021, um, the news hit of the uncovering of all of those graves, the mass graves at that residential school in Canada. And then throughout the rest of 2021 in Canada and the United States, more mass graves of indigenous children who had been at boarding or residential schools kept getting uncovered again and again and again. So now that there's this like larger reckoning that's happening in both countries, both settler nations around this issue. But the thing is, is I think for most people, non-native people, they're like, wow, that's a real tragedy. Like, I can't believe we did that. We need to apologize for doing that. But what people don't understand is that like, let's just talk about Canada. There are more indigenous children in the custody of the state today because of the foster care system than there were at the height of the residential school system 50 years ago. And so children, indigenous children are literally stolen from their mothers at birth in a place like Canada. And so I'm talking about youth suicide, right? I'm talking about like state apprehension of indigenous children. I'm talking about these long legacies of genocide, the genociding of indigenous children at residential and boarding schools. I'm talking about the sterilization of native women, right? They're like, you see this whole spectrum of technologies to essentially prevent indigenous people from having any type of meaningful future, right? In our own homelands, <laughs> in our own homelands, for example. And so if you're gonna talk about mental health, like you have to address what are essentially like still these carceral practices that especially native youth and native women experience at that intersects really profoundly with health, with the public health sector. Um, giving birth in a hospital is dangerous if you're a native woman because you could easily just be like profiled and then your kid can be taken away from you like that actually in a place like Canada and then placed into the custody of the state. And that child more than likely will either just be in um, a group home or they're gonna be filtered out to a, a white settler family, a foster family, right? And then they're gonna be completely removed 
from the context of who they are as an Indigenous person, not to mention what that does to the family. The Indigenous family just destroys the integrity of that family. And so this is why mental health is in such like a chronic crisis, I think, for Native people. Um, and then the huge amounts of loss from things like COVID-19, which have um, adversely impacted Native people, my people especially, right? Navajo Nation had one of the highest death rates um, from COVID-19 in 2020. And so, right, there's so all these compound factors um, for why, why mental health is at an all-time low right now, but it's pretty much just always at an all-time low because colonialism like is super depressing, <laughs> you know, and just like incredibly violent and it saturates every aspect of our lives. Um, I think that the work that we do as the Red Nation, the work that I try to do as an educator and just as like an indigenous person is we provide a lot of hope. We provide light for our people. We carry their dreams in our hearts. You know, we're like, we're the people who are like, we're going to have a future. This is the beautiful future that we envision, that we carry with each other. And, you know, like, this is what we see. And this is like the beauty of our people, the beauty and strength of our people. And so to me, actually, the activism is a remarkable, like, solution to the mental health stuff. Because I know from experience with young Native people, because we have a lot of Native youth who are involved in the Red Nation, when they start to do political organizing and activism, it, like, pulls them out of really dark places because they feel real hope. Because they're like, whoa, like, I have pride in who I am, <laughs> you know? And I can actually see some things changing. And I think a lot of the time people don't see things changing and like that's when they really become hopeless. And so a huge part of our job as activists and as educators is to provide that, that light, you know, that beacon for our people to pull them through really hard times. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. Most people are really struggling with all diseases of despair. Mm -hmm. And so that's nice that you're able to inspire some hope for people. Mm -hmm. Wow. Diseases of despair. That's a really powerful phrase is the native community especially the younger um population are they accepting of their mental health Do, and also like alongside that i know most people in america right now are struggling with access to mental health care and health care in general um, can you shed some light on some of the struggles of even accessing care that's a good question i think um yeah i feel i think like the sense of isolation and alienation is really strong. Um, I think suicide is like a result of that, where you feel so profoundly alienated and that you have nowhere to turn, that that's the only option that you have. And, you know, for a lot of native people, um, the, okay, so the majority of native people are, are just like poor. <laughs> just poor. Then there's like a small sector that's working class and a tiny little sector like me that's like, you know, middle class or whatever. And so when you're just poor, when you're a poor indigenous person, um, living in the United States, your access to healthcare is pretty much limited to the Indian health services, which is just like, you can, all you can do is crack jokes about how bad it is. It's just so bad, right? And then also like, because of the long history of like the inner, the way that the health industry in the United States has like participated so profoundly in colonization, just talking about the mass sterilization, for example, of native women or like the apprehension of children by the state, there is a profound mistrust of healthcare professionals amongst native people. Um, and actually many of us will only go to a hospital or a clinic as like a very last resort, like our foot is falling off, you know, or something like that. And also like not even the more extreme things like getting, you know, sterilized without your consent, for example, which is like an intense form of violence, but 
just the racism, the racism that I, I have a PhD. I am a light skinned native person, you know, like by, by all markers, I would be like a privileged sector that would not have these problems. I cannot tell you how much discrimination I faced, you know, and in the healthcare. Yeah. And it's just like, it's because they're, you know, they're just operating on stereotypes about native people. Like I do drugs or I drink or I can't pay my bills, you know, and all of those kinds of things. And so there's also just like the rote discrimination that native people are like, you know what? I'm really, I'm just tired today. I just don't want to deal with racism today. So I feel really sick. I think I might need antibiotics, but I don't want to go to the doctor because they're just going to ask me all of these messed up questions, you know, and I don't feel like answering these questions for these people. It feels invasive and racist. And so, but yeah, even just going to the doctor, like as an indigenous person, um, oh yeah, access to, that's what it was, access to resources and care for mental health. Um, you know, there's just, there's a lot of things that are stacked against you. I think, especially for um, indigenous youth who are facing like severe mental health issues. And yeah, I think a lot of them turn to social media actually for support or just for an outlet just to like express themselves. Because like I said, you know, being, being indigenous in public in the United States is also, it's, it's fraught with all kinds of things. It's, it's a really difficult terrain to navigate. And, you know, you're up against a lot of racism and a lot of discrimination and just a feeling of like how you're not supposed to be there. Like you don't belong right? I think being a a young indigenous person, you feel a lot like you don't belong. And also, I think a lot of us feel like we don't belong in our own families too, because our families are very complicated. And so like, if you feel like you don't belong anywhere, then like, what's the point, right? And so I think a lot of people find community online, but you know, that's another type of alienation because you're not actually with people, like you're not actually with people um, when you have an online relationship in that way. And so I'm not really sure what resources native youth have Music, a lot of a lot of native people turn to music, young native people, um, for better or worse, skateboarding <laughs> and social media. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, not doctors, but <laughs> <laughs> not doctors. No. <laughs> I think that really a lot of times in like the healthcare system, we attribute like suicide to a very individual choice. Um, like, oh, they had depression or something like that, instead of looking more at the context and the structure. Um, And so I think, like, you touched on that a lot, which I think is really important to bring to light, because, um, I mean, suicide rates are just increasing for Indigenous people, but also just in general, like, the younger population is facing a huge mental health crisis. So lastly, we ask every guest to finish the following sentence, the future is blank. Well, I mean, of course, I'm going to say the future is indigenous. <laughs> I think we actually Couldn't say this in the that. red deal. <laughs> we say this a lot um, in the red nation. And what I mean by that, um, don't have any settler freakouts. This isn't like a, we're going to kick everyone off of our land. And when the land is returned, that's not what I mean by the future is indigenous. The future is indigenous means that the future will be based on like the values that indigenous people have always held true and dear to our hearts, right? That health comes from the ground up, that it requires us to have a fundamentally different relationship with land and place um, and the earth itself. Um, It'll be about being a good relative rather than exploiting and extracting, right? And harming other people. Um, It'll be about equality and democracy, right? It'll be about 
the valuing of women, <laughs> you know, and two-spirit relatives, it'll be based on those types of values, which will require us, you know, um, to really fundamentally transform how we structure and organize society as we know it, which, um, you know, is not like a far-fetched thing to do, like dream big. The future, the future has to be imagined and then it has to be built. And we're in a moment right now where it's like, we have to really actively be doing both. We're under a pretty strict time clock when it comes to climate disaster. 2050, I think is the date they gave us. That's not too far off in the future that's gonna come tomorrow. And so what are we doing? It's like, it's our generation. It's now, right? It's now that we need to be doing this work. And if you think about the future being indigenous and what those values look like, then you're already in a, heading in a good direction because it's actually indigenous people who are saving the planet right now, according to the IEN report. And it's like quantifiably and empirically true. And so you can kind of trust, <laughs> you can kind of trust the vision that indigenous people have um, of what the future should look like. And it would be a really beautiful, really beautiful, vibrant future filled with abundance and joy and love. That was so powerful. I, I love that. Thank you so much. Um, this has been such an amazing conversation. And I know like going back to the resources for indigenous youth, I think that people like you, who they can look up to, and like you were saying, people just need hope and you are creating a vision of the future that people can look towards. Thank you for having me on. This has been a, such a lovely conversation. <laughs> yes, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.